The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Randy Havison. He's author of Party with a Plan, College Edition, The Guide to Successful Drinking. And Randy has been in the business for, he has an MA, has been working in the counseling field since 1986. And since 1991, he's been working in and around higher education. He became the coordinator of health education programs on three university campuses around the country. And his programs have received national recognition for their innovation and effectiveness in reaching college students. He's also one of the expert guests on CNN, uh, Fox News Network, and even the Ricky Lake Show. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Randy. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, I was going to do a quote about your book, uh, Party with a Plan, College Edition, mm-hmm. The Guide to Successful Drinking, which is an interesting topic, but I'm going to let you sort of give the introduction instead of I. But um, successful drinking, because we don't usually talk about that. Where, you know, college mm-hmm. students particularly, they hear, like, hey, you know, you just have to say no, stop drinking, um, mm-hmm. which doesn't make too much sense because college students aren't going to stop drinking. And so uh, that's why I think your book is so unique. So let's talk about that. How do you drink successfully, and how do you tell college students to drink successfully? And what does that mean? What that means, successful drinking means that you go and you enjoy alcohol without negative consequences associated with your drinking. And you're correct that the messages that we've been giving college students all these years are, number one, just say no, which we know doesn't work for 75% of the students out there. And the only other message is be responsible. But I found that that term has very little validity. Because if you go to any college campus and just randomly go up to five different students and say, can you define responsible drinking? You would get five completely different answers. So, so what would be the answer? Let's the start with that because your book is very different. Okay, so let's mm-hmm. say you do go to those college students and I uh, mm-hmm. and and you ask them what is responsible drinking. What kind of answers uh-huh. do you get? I mean, you say you get a whole you know slew of them. What would they say? How would they define it? Or and their different uh, answers. The best one that I've ever heard is, yeah, I'm a responsible drinker. Well, can you define that for me? Well, as long as I don't drive, I'm responsible. Okay, well, how many do you have? I don't know, 12, 15, something like that. So in his mind, he was being a responsible drinker because he wasn't drinking and driving. So with that term being so vague, people are able to shift it in any way that they can. So another one that I heard is, well, I'm responsible because I only drink on the weekends. Well, how much do you drink? Well, I don't know, 6, 8, 12. There's really no number attached to it. So the thing about the Party with a Plan program and the successful drinking plan 
is it gives guidelines on the number of drinks per hour, how many times per week, and how many drinks per episode or per day. So it gives very solid guidelines that says this is what low-risk drinking is, and this is how to be successful. Successful means you have a few drinks with your buddies, you wake up the next morning, you're feeling clear, you remember everything you did the night before, you had a good time, and you get to move on with your day, and there's no negative consequence involved with what you did the night before. Have you used this program in, I assume, obviously you've done a lot of research and you have used this Mm -hmm. program in different colleges and universities across the country, and Mm -hmm. so you do have a proven record that this works with, what did you say, 75% of the students, yeah. Yeah, one of the th- the feedback that I get from students over and over and over is thank you so much for giving us a message that works, that it's not a slap on the hand, just say no, or wagging my finger in their face, but I'm actually giving them good information. And I have a whole email box filled from students, and it's called students. And it's filled with emails that I get from students that say, thank you so much for this message. It really makes sense, and you've changed my, my, the way that I look at drinking. I think that's, that's so important. Thing. You know, I'm oh. thinking about it mm-hmm. in terms of, like, sex on campuses and those who say, well, just wait till you get married before you have sex, and so you don't need yeah. birth control. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. we know yeah. that doesn't work. So it's, sort of, it's, kind of, it's the same principle, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to teach them how to be low risk and how to do it in a way that's going to that's going to avoid consequences. Okay. So let's start. Yes. Let's be you know, we can talk specifically about what's in mm-hmm. the book. Um, okay. you call it a 0123 code, which means what? Okay, the 0123, I wanted to find something that was really easy to remember and follow. So 0 is sometimes your best option in any given evening or in any situation. So what I teach people is if, if there's an instinct or something that's saying, you know what, tonight's just not a good night to drink, then listen to that instinct. But other reasons to say no or to have zero would be if you have to drive, if you're on any type of medication, if you haven't eaten, if you're really stressed or you haven't been sleeping well, of course, if you're pregnant. And then another thing that I also tell students, it's also a good idea for zero to be your option if you're under the age of 21. Because people under 21 have special consequences and circumstances they need to deal with that people over 21 don't have to deal with. So again, the recommended guideline for people under 21 is zero. Now, whether they take personal responsibility and do that or not is completely up to them. But the well, rest I think another of the program, one of the things that you mentioned, which in the context mm-hmm. of a college or university, if you have a test the next day or you have some responsibility that mm-hmm. you have to, that uh, you know then the next morning, it's not a good idea to be drinking the night before or drinking heavily the night before, right? Exactly. And, and that's a big part of it, too. And I do differentiate that for in the student, in the college book, where I talk about if you do have a test or a paper or a final, because a, a night of high-risk drinking can actually stay in your system and impair the way that your brain is functioning for up to three days. So people who say, I'm going to party hard Saturday night, and then Sunday I'm going to study or do this paper, if you're making high-risk choices on Saturday night, then on Sunday you're not going to be at 100% to be able to do your paper or study for your test. Okay. So what you're talking about in the book, even though it's, this is the college edition, it really works mm-hmm. for uh, all of us, doesn't it? I mean, whether you, I mean it, 
it's, it's specific, and it has obviously uh, specific guidelines for college students, but kind of the whole mm-hmm. concept, I think, just works for those of us who like to drink. And I think I saw you, I, I don't know if it was in the book or online, but I like to drink too, and it feels good, mm-hmm. and it's drinking is fun, and drinking, you know, mm-hmm. and so how do we, you know, just I as a, not a college student, but I too would like to kind of follow these guidelines because I think it works. Absolutely, and it does work. And the reason why this first one that I put out is the college edition, because I'm planning to have a whole suite of books. And in fact, today I get to go to my printer and pick up Party with a Plan, the holiday edition. So I take out all the references to college, and I added references that have to do with the holiday season, because this is a high-risk time for a lot of people where we see more deaths on the highway, we see more injuries. So I talk about office parties and family gatherings and neighborhood parties and how to stay low-risk with alcohol during those time periods uh, using the 0123 guidelines. And okay, so we did zero. Have... What about now? And, okay, and I think we well, yeah. you know, have a somewhat clear idea of what zero means. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, okay, now using this code, so now let's get to number one. What's number one? That's one step down or one step up? <laughs> one step up is that the low-risk guideline is no more than one drink per hour with a drink defined as a 12-ounce beer, a 5-ounce glass of wine, or a 1-ounce shot in a mixed drink because that's what your liver can metabolize at any one time. So it doesn't stress out your liver and tax your liver and the other organs of your body. So one per hour is the amount that your body can handle. So that's why that is the low-risk guideline. But, Randy, what about this? Let's say you're at a party, a fraternity party, or just a party on campus. What it, mm-hmm. You're talking about, so you could have one drink per hour. Your liver will metabolize that drink, process the whole thing. But what if you're there, say you're at the party for seven hours, so that means you could have seven drinks but one drink per hour and be safe? Well, no, the, the entire code, no more than one per hour. The two is to drink no more than two times per week, and the three is to have no more than three drinks in any 24-hour period. Okay. So it's three drinks spaced an hour apart, and, and those are the low-risk guidelines. And basically what it does is it differentiates people who drink from people who get drunk. So it's, it's also looking at, you know, what is your motivation for drinking? And part of the Party with a Plan program is to ask yourself certain questions before you go out, the who, what, where, when, why, and how, so that you have a better idea and your drinking choices are more conscious and you have your plan in mind before you go out. I don't remember which of the alcohol companies has this motto, think when you drink, but I don't know many people that think when they drink. It's about thinking before you drink and having that plan before you go out so you're fully aware of what you're doing and that way you come home safely. Well, what about the kid who's going to the party and he says to his girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, you know, I just want to go and get bombed because I've had it. You know, I've been taking tests all week. I'm under a lot of pressure. I just want to go to this party and just get wiped. Mm-hmm. And then my, my answer to that person would be you would be answering the why, you know, of the who, what, where, when, why. Why are you planning to drink tonight? You know what? I've had a hard week. I just want to get hammered. And what I address is, are you using alcohol to do something that you don't feel you can do on your own? Or are there substitutes that you can use besides using alcohol as a crutch and you set up this pattern of behavior that you start depending on alcohol in order to give you that effect? 
But for someone who wants to go out and, and drink in a high-risk way, I would say you know, that's not a good idea. But if you are, make sure that you have as many of those points covered as you possibly can. But again, you know, the analogy that I use is that party with a plan actually gives us a, a so-called speed limit that says here's the limit at which it's safe to drive on the street. If you follow these low-risk guidelines, it's like following the speed limit. And we all know that the more you go over the speed limit, the more you put yourself and others at risk. So if someone says, I'm just going to go 120 miles an hour on this, on this highway, well, that's probably not a good idea. But if you are, um, you know, good luck to you, and I hope you don't hurt yourself or somebody else. I think what you're doing, I think which is really important, really making, well, in this case, college students think about what they're doing. I mean, you wouldn't take medication by just, you know, you know, swallowing a bottle of pills because you want it to mm-hmm. feel good. I mean, you do have to think about how many pills you're taking. Um, so it's kind of the same way, I think, that you, it's what you're doing with the alcohol. Really, as you say, do it before you go out. Do it before you start drinking. What do you do when you, you go out and you've done this, say, and, and one has read your book, and, and then you go out with a bunch of other people who haven't read the book or haven't thought about it? Where, I mean, and you've talked to a lot of college students. What do they do? How do they not sort of succumb to what the group is doing or help the group to maybe follow some of the, um, you know, some of your plan? Or how does that work? Well, you know, it's about students educating students also and being able to say, hey, I just read this book and it makes a lot of sense and for the next month I'm going to follow these guidelines and, hey, do you want to do it too, sticking to the zero, one, two, three, and see what people say. Another distinction that I make in the book is that there's a difference between a friend and a drinking buddy. And if you go to your friend and say, hey, tonight I'm not going to have more than three, your friend is going to say, okay, cool, you know what, I'll do that with you. But a drinking buddy is going to say, three, dude, why bother? Come on, let's go get hammered. So a friend supports your healthy decisions. A drinking buddy is going to encourage you to go over your limits. So, well, you've heard a lot of it, stories from a lot of these students at a lot of different kinds of universities. So how about you know, mm-hmm. share a couple of the worst-case stories, you know, maybe the worst-case scenarios, and then maybe some of the, the, the good ones, the positive ones, the ones who have used the uh, 0123 code. But, um, you know, because... I always like to hear it from sort of like somebody who has experience. Not you know you've done research, but you've also had sort of a hands-on connection with these students. Yes, absolutely. And and the one that I had most hands-on experience with is me. <laughs> when I was in college, I didn't have those guidelines. I didn't have any boundaries, and I made high-risk choices consistently. And I started depending on the alcohol in order to give me that effect and to be the cure. I thought I can't dance if I don't have alcohol, and it's easier to talk to girls if I'm drunk. So I depended on alcohol and then moved to other drugs, and I actually found myself uh, in the throes of alcoholism. So I've been sober now. I've been in long-term recovery for 31 years. So it's funny, you know, people are like, wait, you're a recovering alcoholic and you teach people how to drink? I was like, well, who better? So... (laughs) So it's from my own experience that I do this. It's like, what kind of message would I have listened to? And maybe this would have been a message that made sense and I would have listened to. But, you know, I could tell you all kinds of horror stories. You know, there was this one female that I spoke with, and she, every instinct in her body said, don't 
drink tonight. And she drank, and she was with her boyfriend, and he got drunk, and he said, let's go home. And they got in the car, and they were driving home, and he got in a wreck, and he walked away, and she didn't. And she is in a wheelchair for the rest of her life because of one decision, not trusting that instinct, that now because of someone else's impairment and because of her impaired decision-making, now she's in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And, of course, we all know the stories of someone who's died because of an alcohol overdose or did something while under the influence of high-risk drinking. So those stories are are too plentiful, and that's another reason why I want to do this. So we have less kids hurting themselves with alcohol. I mean, those are sobering stories, obviously. I mean, and... and, uh... Yeah, very sobering. And you mentioned your own. Your, I have to ask you this. You're okay, 31 years recovering addict, recovering alcoholic. That You know, mm-hmm. when I was actually practicing as a social worker and I, I did work with the groups, um, alcoholics and their families, what is the, and I haven't done that in a while, so I want to ask, what is, when you are a recovering are there still two schools of thought that you can drink, say drink responsibi- responsibly like your uh, uh, like your book, uh, or that you have to just not drink at all? Well, you know, it, that is a very heavily debated topic. And my view is, can I go and drink in a low-risk way? Can I go have a glass of wine or a drink? My, my analogy is, the dragon has been over in the corner for 31 years, and I don't know if he's sleeping or if he's dead. But why do I want to go poke him to find out? I'm just going to let it be, and I enjoy my life without alcohol, so I'm just going to continue on this path. And I know plenty of people, especially young adults, who find themselves in the throes of drug addiction, and then they get sober, and they're thinking, well, maybe I can drink one day. And what I usually suggest to them is, okay, well, you know what? Get five years of sobriety under your belt before you make that decision. And then see if you can follow the low-risk guidelines. But you have to know for yourself. Nobody can do it for them. So you can't make someone stay sober. And I always think it's, it's a dangerous situation to play with fire like that because if it is an addiction and it kicks back in, now they're right back where they were before. So I think there's a fine line sometimes between someone who abuses and someone who's addicted. And we don't have a litmus test to see which one it is for each individual. So that's why people are playing with fire when they say, well, let me just see if I can go back and do it. And some people are successful and good for them. That's great. But others end up back in the throes of their addiction and end up making really bad decisions. Yeah. Well, that's good advice, and because uh, I, I know a new term now that they use is the high-functioning alcoholic, which is another term. Mm-hmm. People who can function, and you know, people in, in, in their environment, socially or at work or whatever, but they're really not functioning at the level at which they would be. They are able to function to the outside world. Mm-hmm. It looks like they're functioning, but actually they're not in terms of what their capabilities are. So that's another group that I would imagine that you would be addressing. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the group that can actually be the most devastating. Because I know a lot of people, and I've worked with a lot of people, who grew up in alcoholic families, and dad was able to go to work and do a really great job uh, as a high-functioning alcoholic, but when he would come home, the, the devastating effect within the family was horrific. 
and I've worked with these kids, and I really think that that's one of the underserved populations on college campuses are, are people who grew up in alcoholic families. But a lot of times the high-functioning one who thinks that they're okay, they're actually not okay, and they're having horrible health effects. And, and you're right. You know, if they can function that well when they're drinking alcoholically, think about how much better they're going to be able to be if they're not drinking. I want to get back to also because you brought up your own, you know, your personal history. It's been 31 years. And what about your own family? Were there was were either one of your parents alcoholics or, were, or siblings or were you the only one? Or what was like the circumstances of your drinking? Um, I am the only one. It, it's nowhere in my family. I'm not one of those that has a family history of alcoholism, and we do know that there's a genetic link. But I think addiction and alcoholism, it's it's different factors that come into play and if the puzzle pieces fall into line in the right way then a person will get this disease and for me it was a lack of self-esteem i never felt like i was good enough i wasn't the smartest one so i felt like i was stupid i wasn't the most athletic one so i felt like i was clumsy so i always compared myself with other people and i always came up short so it was a self-esteem and a peer pressure type situation. I had a cousin who uh, was using drugs, and, and he turned me on to a lot of that. So it was, I just fell into that, and it, this was in the late 70s when drugs were out there, and it seemed, like, it seemed like everybody was doing it, but it was just everybody that I knew who was doing it. And I just made some wrong choices, and I got hooked, and the disease took over. So, in other words, you were there. You were in a vulnerable position emotionally, psychologically, whatever, socially. What college? Mm-hmm. Where did you go to school? Uh, I started at Oregon State, and that lasted only one year. Uh, then I ended up at San Diego State University, and that's where I actually uh, I was expelled a couple times. Then finally got the message. Huh? I wonder if it's the drugs. So I got sober. Actually, that that made it seem really light. Actually, it was a suicide attempt that helped me realize that the drugs and alcohol were a problem. Uh, Got help, got back into school, and maintained my sobriety. And here I am 31 years later with a master's degree, and I get to do things like write books and be on amazing radio shows and help a lot of people. So... I have one of those success stories. You did. You had a great success story. But, Randy, what about now, and you really had to kind of, I don't know if this is, you know, antiquated term, but kind of hit bottom. I mean, you know, a Mm -hmm. suicide attempt um, and dropping out of college several times and all of those kinds of things. What would you say to kids so that you have to get to, so you don't have to get to that point, so that you can recognize, hey, you know, I'm not doing this right. I am not drinking successfully. I have to... Uh, get your book and uh, follow some of the guidelines for that, but mm-hmm. I don't have to get to the point where I, I feel suicidal or I'm fucking out of school. How do you do that? Yeah, that's what I do in my presentation is I talk to them, and actually I address this in the book too, where I talk about are you in control of the alcohol or is alcohol in control of you? And I say even for those of you who are making high-risk decisions, see if you can actually stop. So for the next month, do the zero, one, two, three, and see if you can really follow those guidelines. Or do you start to make excuses? Well, tonight I'll just have four, and then you end up having eight. So follow, pick a month and say, this month I'm going to do the zero, one, two, three, and see if I can still do it. 
So the Party with a Plan program actually draws that line in the sand that says, this means you're okay and you can handle it. Now, on the other hand, if you're not able to follow the low-risk guidelines, it means you've crossed to the other side and now you need to go get help. So yeah, the hope is that students aren't going to have to hit rock bottom, that they're going to get the message that, wow, I'm having trouble keeping in control of my drinking. I need to stop this. And again, I get emails all the time from students that say, thank you so much. I was on the wrong path. I could see myself heading where you were heading, and I don't want to get there. So I'm going to take a look at this now. I think the other thing is, you know, even if you are able to follow the uh, zero, one, two, three guidelines or code, if you are if it's difficult for you to do it, that would be another warning sign. Maybe you're able to do it, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult for you to be able to do it. It's not simple. I mean, you really have to work on it. I mean, to me, that would be somewhat of a red flag as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a red flag. And it's up to that individual to say, do I want to keep messing with this? Because I've been singed a little bit. Do I really want to get seriously burned? And there are plenty of people out there. You know, one of the best examples that I have of a great college experience is my nephew. I mean, he's one of my role models. He's a junior in college. He's never had a sip of alcohol. He's having so much fun with his friends. He's actually doing a study abroad program in a couple of months over to China. And he's just having a phenomenal college experience. And he's never had a drug. He's never had a sip of alcohol. His friends all accept that part of him. You know, they might have a couple drinks and know that he's just not going to. So, you know, it is possible, and studies seem to show that about a quarter of college students choose not to drink at all. So it's not that everybody drinks. That's not true. 25% of students, one out of every four, is choosing not to drink, and they're having just as much of a college experience as everybody else. So it's okay to join that bandwagon and say, you know what, I've had some bad experiences. I think I'm just going to give it up. Do you think the peer pressure is the same, let's say, than when, or different than when you were in college, that there's less peer pressure do, or more peer pressure? Because if you're describing at least a quarter of these students don't drink, do have a good time, don't succumb to peer pressure, is there a lot of it or, or not? Or do students just, okay, it's up to you, do what you want, um, I don't care? Now, I think there's a lot of peer pressure still, and I I don't know how to gauge whether it's better or worse than it was before, but I know that it's really strong. And I know there's still a lot of students that feel like everybody drinks or everybody smokes pot these days, but it's not everybody. It's just everybody you know, because there's still a quarter of the students out there that don't. But unfortunately, you know, they're a silent minority. They don't really speak up and say, hey, everybody, come over and hang out in our dorm room. We're going to have pizza and, and play music and hang out until 2 o'clock in the morning, but we're not going to drink. Come on, let's go. You know, they don't do that. So it's a silent minority of students out there that are making good choices. Uh, and, you know, my hope is that that number is going to grow. One of the things I do when I go to campuses, I have these uh, party with a plan wristbands. You know how a lot of students wear wristbands for different causes? I have one that's glow-in-the-dark, and it's something that students can wear to a party, and that designates that they're someone who's going to make low-risk choices. So what they can do is go around and see who else is wearing one of these wristbands, and it identifies that person as someone else who's making low-risk choices. So they might all be carrying their red cups, but they see the wristband and say, hey, you're making low-risk choices tonight? And the other person says, yeah, now they just potentially made a new friend. 
That's a great idea. That, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, you could use that not just, you could use that with anybody. You don't, as I keep saying, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously you, this is for the college edition of your book, and we only have a minute left, so I just want to mention the oh, book no. again. Yes, I know. Party with a Plan, College Edition, The Guide to Successful Drinking, Randy Havison. Randy, and he's coming out with a new book, which is will apply to all of us, even if you're not in college. So a mm-hmm. uh, website that we can go to, obviously, to learn more about your books and what you're doing. Partywithaplan.com. That's it. Yeah. Well, you're doing good work. and uh, Thank you. Yeah, great having you on the show today. It was great being here. I did, yeah. This just flew by. Yep. Uh, Thanks. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Pamela Lenahan. She's author of My Mother, My Mentor, What Grown Children of Working Mothers Want You to Know. Pamela was one of the first female partners on Wall Street, a former C-suite executive of an NYSE company and a high-tech startup. She climbed to a, she climbed, well, she combined a climb to the vanguard of business leadership with a passionate dedication to raising her own children. An avid believer in the power of women to lead as well as parent, she serves on the boards of three publicly traded firms and is also the author of another book, which you don't know and your boss won't tell you, uh, advice from senior female executives on what you need to succeed. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Pamela. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
uh, obviously another important topic and as a woman and a working mother uh, and as a mother of actually three grown boys, uh, I really identified with the premise in your book. Uh, you say 70% of mothers in the United States with children under 18 are working, yet 60% of those uh, adults polled think that they really their kids would do better if they stayed home. But that's not actually what you found in your research and uh, and in your own personal life. So uh, let and hence the book, my mother, my mentor. Uh, so tell us. Um, it, it seems to me, or it sounds like the book came from your own personal experiences uh, or your own perhaps feelings of guilt as a working mother. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, let's start with the sort of the seeds of, of how this book, uh, how, why you decided to write the book. Well, I think that my generation was the first generation of mothers who went to work and went back to after maternity leave and stayed in the workforce full time. And all my friends and I had children who turned out very well. I mean, there were certainly the challenges along the way, as there are with any children, but our kids turned out well. And yet we kept hearing from mothers as younger mothers as we would go to networking events you know, how did you manage it all? So I think my generation did not do a very good job of communicating this to the next generation. So right. I well, you have to just identify I, your generation. What are we talking about in terms of the age? Well, I have grown children. I have children who are in their early 30s. And so, in fact, my daughter has three children and is a working mother herself. So I am a proud working grandmother. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. But I think what we found is that uh, as we talked, it was a question of did our kids turn out well? Was this luck or was this the norm? And so what really wanted to find out by doing interviews with mothers and children and then doing an online survey of more than a 1,000 people to compare the experiences in childhood of working mothers, uh, children with working mothers, and children whose mothers stayed at home. And they were very, they were very similar. Were you surprised at the results? I mean, I mean, or was this something that you expected before you did your research and you kind of wanted to validate and prove it because you had these very successful children? I don't know, you did two or three children in their early 30s? Right. Um, well, I, I did want to try to see, I did want, you, when you're doing research, you don't want to just assume you know the answer. So I was trying to be independent and trying to look at this. But by doing the, uh, the interviews, you got more personal stories. But by doing the survey, we got data. And the children had the same experiences, although actually there were some positives to having a working mother. So, for example, one thing that surprised me is that working mothers use school and after-school after sports and activities as babysitting. We don't call it babysitting. The kids think they're in charge. They think that they're going off to soccer or they're going off to, to choir or band, and they think that they're setting their own schedule. But you and I know that they're in the hands of other adults who are taking care of them. So, But these children actually reported having, the children of working mothers reported having more friends at all levels of school than children whose mothers stayed at home. That, that did surprise me. The other thing is that the children of working mothers were very proud of their working mother, and working mothers gave their children a strong work ethic. And not to say other mothers didn't too, but it was at a much higher reported rate by children whose mothers worked outside the home. Do you think that some of this it came about, you know, feeling that you should, say, our generation feeling that, because my, my kids are the same age as yours, but that we needed to stay at home because sort of feeling that, the mothers who did stay at home, I always felt wanted to make me, when I was working, and I sort of did both, feel guilty about working because they were staying at home. So, and I kind of took on that guilt, and I and also had 
and do have children who did well in school, successful, all of those kinds of things. So it was sort of not being able to, as mothers, accept what we were doing, or we didn't have the support. Does that Well, that's a really interesting question. I think that when I was in the workforce with young children, as I say, that feminism did not follow us into the workplace. So when I had young children, there were no pictures of kids in your offices. There were no email groups of working moms. There was no email. There were no LinkedIn groups that you could join. There were no Facebook friends to give you support. So we were all alone in our own silos, and we were very isolated. And I think that the uh, also there was very little way to communicate with the mothers who had made a different choice because we weren't there in school. So what I see in my daughter's generation is they're doing a much better job staying connected with the mothers who are staying at home. And that's perfectly valid. I think every woman should make her own choice. But these women have groups of friends. They do stay connected. The teachers are able to communicate with working mothers more. So I think that there is less of that today than there was in our generation. So less judgment, women not judging themselves for working and other women not judging them. Um, so the kind of the, the, the social atmosphere now, as you say, with your daughters, is, is just is much more positive in terms of you out there working, and also the connection. I mean, don't you think the internet changed all of that? Being being able to connect online. I, I do, I do, and I know that. The, but there's also been a shift in society. So, in the mid '70s, only 47 percent of women with children under 18 were in the workforce, and now it's 71 percent. So, in one generation, there's been a huge shift in what we call the traditional family. So it's much more common now for two parents to be in the workforce. It's also, I think, more common for men to, uh, whoever, or your partner, whoever it is, or another woman, um, to, to share in the responsibilities as well. So <laughs> I, that changes everything. You know, they can, you can, so your, your roles are, are more intertwined. You can, both of you can go, to, can go to work, take care of the children. You know, your, your roles aren't so clearly defined as working, non-working. I think that's also part of it. That's true, but I think also that what we forget is that having a father who steps up and shares some of this responsibility is also a great role model to his children. So we are seeing that um, we are seeing that the children are getting a good example from the father who is you know stepping up. And I heard stories from a lot of the families I interviewed where it was the father who had the more flexible schedule. And he was the one who did the shopping and did the did the meals. So, um, you know, I think that, that, again, we forget that. We always take all the guilt on ourselves, and we forget what good examples we are to our children. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that you're sort of bringing this up. The definitions of what's masculine and what's feminine have changed. So fathers feel proud about going to the grocery store or going to the after-school activities with the kids or taking them to the doctor. Or those. It's, it's not a not-masculine thing to do. It's a good thing, and they get a lot of feed, positive feedback from that. So obviously that's good for the mother who wants to be working full-time. So uh, as you say, from gener- it, it's changed from generation to generation. Um, what about some of the stories? I mean, you know, because you have interviewed, what did you say, over a thousand people? Or um, no, no, the thousand people was online. I'd be oh. hard to <laughs> interview personally. It, it was it was about seventy people. <laughs> okay, well, still okay. The seventy people. Uh, and so you have a lot of stories there, different kinds of stories. Why don't you share a, a couple of those? Well, I think one of the really fun things is to ask people about what their favorite memories are of their childhood. 
And it was surprising how mundane some of these favorite memories are. And so one of the favorite memories for many, many children is grocery shopping with the mother. And children remember just sitting in the car and being pushed around. And uh, one, one man who now is, um, is heading up a school says that one of his favorite things was at the end his mother would give him a candy bar if he were good. And uh, my own daughter, I would drive home from the train station and pick her up and then drive her to, um, you know, drive her back to the grocery store and we'd go together and I would take cans and boxes off the shelves and explain what they were to her. And she swears that she learned how to read in the grocery store. So children like to have time with you and they don't have to be special events and they don't have to be taken to Disneyland. It can be that they really just want to be with you when you run your errands and to them that is special. Well, you know, you talk about that. Well, I mean, hearing you is, you know, the quality time thing. And then people say, well, that quality time is overused and it's not just quality time. It has to be a certain amount of time. And what you're saying is not necessarily, each family is different and each relationship is different between the couple and the, and the children. So it's not, quality time is more important than exactly how much time is that, what, you know, or yeah, you don't have to go to Disney World and, uh, stay at a five-star hotel. That's not what the kids remember, although they may remember that too, but they do do. <laughs> well, one, one young woman uh, said that one of her favorite memories was cleaning the house on Saturday morning with her mother. And she said even from the time she was four years old, she remembers this, that her mother would, they, they didn't have a cleaning lady. And so her mother did everything. And so what her mother would do is get up on Saturday morning and she'd put on Bruce Springsteen is what this young woman remembers, and that they would dance and they would sing and they would vacuum and they would dust. And she said that today, every time she hears Bruce Springsteen, she smiles because it reminds her of that great morning she had with her mother. So to the mother, that was a real chore, but to her daughter, it was special. So I think that we can just incorporate these things in our everyday lives. What about... um I mean, Pamela, what about, we've been talking a lot about the positive or the changes, but what about some of the negative stuff? I mean, are there things that are, that are unique or negative to, let's say, uh, those kids who had working mothers who worked full time as opposed to those whose mother was home all the time? I mean, I know for me sometimes I was home, but when I was home all the time at certain periods of my life, my kids got sick of me, actually. I mean, I've repeated this story a couple times on the radio, but I remember one of my sons, he was in middle school, he came home, I'm sitting on the couch waiting for him, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I live here. But I think he had had (laughs) enough of me (laughs) waiting for him to come home from school, so... um, the well, the only, the only negative from the yeah. survey that I found, which was interesting, is that watching that it asked the, the adults who now looking back is what their grades were like in elementary, middle, and high school. And that the children of working mothers, uh, everybody seemed to report pretty good grades in elementary school, but then grades dropped for all groups in middle school and then dropped again in high school. And apparently this is very highly documented, which I didn't know as a parent, but you can find this on any education blog. And um, But the children of working parents dropped a little faster. And so I thought, oh, this is terrible. You know, maybe I'm a mother. I wasn't paying enough attention. So I think you probably do need to pay attention. And yet the graduation rates were exactly the same and going to college was exactly the same. So I think that really what a lot of it might be is that the children of working parents were involved in a lot more sports and after-school activities. It was a combination of that keeping them busy plus the kids wanted to get out there and do things. 
So um, it could be that just the parents were looking at the whole picture as opposed to just the grades. But that's something that if I were rethinking it, I would want to know about because I would want to be careful that as my child moved from these different schools, from elementary to middle, middle to high school, that I was on top of it and watching those grades. So what would you do? I mean, okay, say, Pamela, like let's say if you were in a position to realize that your kids were being sort of overworked at all their activities and they weren't paying attention to their grades, but you really couldn't be there every day, uh, maybe even helping them with their homework. So what would be some of the solutions to that? I mean, you want to be aware that that's happening, but then what do you do? Like if they're not going to the activities, you hire somebody to, you know, be at home with them who can help you out, or what are some of the solutions to that? Well, you could do that. Uh, it could also be that you um, take advantage of the after-school programs because there are a lot of schools that do have after-school activities that are helping with homework. Um, also, apparently a lot of these academic studies say that it's really the focus of the child, that just as children get older, that they get more independence and that it's encouraging these kids to to use that independence. So it's not to say that your child necessarily will have lower grades, but I think as as working parents, we just need to be in communication with teachers and what's going on in the classroom. And again, it's a lot easier now that we have technology to do that. What about the stress that it puts on a working parent? Because that obviously is there. I mean, if you have a responsibility, not to say that, the, as you say, and you've done the research and interviewed these you know, um, uh, families and people uh, and children, but what about, I mean... How do you help mothers to, I mean, they are working full-time, um, and they are, it seems to me, and you can correct me, sometimes really overstressed because you really are handling, even though your partner may be doing his or her equal share, uh, there are extra stressors, aren't they? I mean, you come home from work, you've been working all day. Uh, it's very difficult physically and emotionally to give the attention, I think, to your kids that you maybe need to on a day-by-day basis? Well, I think that's true, and I think that we need to support our our sisters, our friends, our nieces who have these young children, and it's, um, it's hard so that if you could act as a sounding board for someone. I know that I had a friend who had a, a, a babysitter who quit, and so she called me one morning early. She was driving into work um, to quit herself to stay home. And I said, well, do you want to? And she said, no, no, I really love my job. I, I don't want to. And so, but she only ever had one babysitter since her two children were little. And so in the long drive she had from her house to her work, we talked through what the different options were so that by the time she went into work, she was talking to her boss about just taking a couple of days off so that she could solve her childcare solution instead of just letting the emotion of the moment overtake her. So I think a lot of times what working mothers need is they need other mothers to talk to. So really would love to have the more experienced mothers step forward and try to mentor some of these younger mothers who are, and they're not all younger, they're just, because women have children different ages these days, but some of the less experienced mothers and help them and let them see that there are solutions to a lot of these problems. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, that's well said that women sometimes in those, well, the example you just gave is, they don't really feel like they have options or choices. It's kind of an either or thing. You know, my babysitter quit, so now I have to quit my job. Hey, there might be 10 different solutions to this. Um, I always had made sure that I, I have three kids, and whether I was working or not working, I always had help. 
my mother's uh, my mother's advice to me was, you know, you need help when you're younger, not when you're old, not when they're older. So why not get it now and spend your money that way? It was great advice. And at different times, if I were home, then I would have maybe just a high school girl or somebody because. I was there, I was responsible, and if I weren't, then it would be maybe a different kind of person who was helping out or who was babysitting or being a nanny or whatever. So there are lots of options, I guess is what you're saying, and we have to be aware that there are as women. Right, and I think we need to support each other. We need to to just let women uh, breathe a little bit and and let them vent to someone not at work because what I tell young mothers is that if you – kind of fall apart at work, you're just not going to get the opportunities you want. So you need to find a sounding board outside of work in order to, to you know, lower your stress level, which everybody has, whether they have children or not. Do they listen to you? They do. I, well, I think they do. I mean, I talk to my daughter a lot. I, I have a stepdaughter. I have two stepdaughters now, one of whom also has working with two children, and talk to her a lot. And sometimes that's all they really need is they just need someone to talk to. And they're going to come to the solution themselves, but they just are talking out loud. They're thinking out loud, and they need someone to be a sounding board. So I think the more that we can provide that for each other, the better it is. Yeah, well, because that goes back to women putting pressure on themselves and somehow that we, and I think women tend to do this more, this is a generalization, I haven't researched it, but as opposed to, let's say, a a man, a partner, a husband, uh, doesn't feel as much responsibility for the kids' either successes or failures, but somehow it always kind of turns to the mother, well, you weren't there, so that's why your kid is doing such and such and it's not working out, and that we take on, we feel guilty about that, um, and we take on that responsibility and that guilt. But, but you, you know, say, it's interesting, it, yeah. when, through this research, it was great to compare the children whose mothers stayed at home with the children whose mothers worked, and children were bullied and felt left out at exactly the same rates, whether their mother worked or not. And yet the children of working mothers actually felt that they had more independence, that they had more resilience, that parents, since they weren't there on a daily basis during the the school day, they felt more of a need to really teach the kids how to solve their own problems. And so these children felt that they became more confident in themselves. So I think that all mothers... Again, I think we all make our own choices, and I think all mothers do a great job, but the children of working mothers have to learn these skills a little bit earlier, and the children say that it helps them in their adult lives. That makes sense because I'm thinking about these helicopter parents and the hovering parents and the mothers who are there all the time, always on top of the kid, uh, and that's not a good thing, it help, and, and making choices for them. 24-7 as opposed to, like you're talking about, kids who have to take on some responsibilities some, for themselves. I mean, that would seem to be a, a real a real plus, um, and and very different than let's say my mother who's home all the time. Um, what about the working mothers who we're talking about? Like, sort of like w- uh, women who work full time. Uh, what about part time? Is that the other differences? If you're just you're doing both. Well. Uh, I was really looking at the two ends of the spectrum, so I don't have all the grades in between. But I think that there are a lot of reasons that um, people might want to, for whatever reason, work a different schedule when they have younger kids. You might want to be careful about taking a job that is too much travel. You might uh, not want a job where you have to work all weekends. 
so that you can see your kids. So women make different choices. And I have, I know a number of women who worked part-time when their kids were older and then came back into very senior positions when, when I'm sorry, when children were younger, they worked part-time. And as their children got older, more independent, that they went back full-time. So I think that what I encourage younger women is to stay in the workforce whatever schedule is comfortable for you so that you keep your skills up because it's a lot harder to stop and then go right back in. You're going to be losing um, a lot of training along the way. So if you can keep your networks up and you can be in there at at least part-time, but there are a lot of options for full-time as well. You just need to figure out what works for your family. Yeah, I think one of the things, and, and I don't think you can do this in corporate America, but at least from uh, my, as a uh, social worker, I had the opportunity to do as you say, keeping my skills up even in volunteer work that was very much related to what I did when I got paid for it so that the skills were there even though I wasn't getting paid for it or engaging my kids in activities that I like to do that I got them involved in that maybe were related to social work. So uh, you can be very creative about that. Um, And as I say, I'm not sure that really works when you're talking about your, uh, you know, being a vice president of a company or being... um, a partner on Wall Street, but um, most of us don't do that anyway. So, uh, yeah, you can be creative about what you do when you're not working full-time. Well, a lot of these big firms are very concerned about keeping women in the workforce, and one of the women I know worked three days a week at a very large consulting firm and then came back when her children were older to run their entire office. So I think that you don't just assume that these uh, that your work can't accommodate you. It's a lot easier, frankly, at big companies and small companies, but you can try to um, look for a schedule that fits your needs. But you can probably do a lot more than you think, especially if you get your spouse to help you. And also, isn't this, there's more uh, transparency, some of these big companies who are more uh, accommodating to women, women who work part-time or women who want to come back into the workforce, I mean, that's changing too, isn't it? Uh, It is, although, as I said, it's easier to stay part-time than to be hired in part-time. So if you're a known employee and you want to go down to three or four days a week, they're more likely to consider that than if you're a stranger and want to do that. So they know what you can do. They know what your skills are. You're important to the company, so you want to stay there, right? You're not going to – yeah, and that's understandable. We only have a couple minutes left, so talk to us about – well, we can get your book at bookstores everywhere online, My Mother, My Mentor, What Grown Children of Working Mothers Want You to Know. Uh, and then do you have a website when you talk about, like, uh, I mean, you do a lot of, um, I'm calling it counseling with, with young women, mentoring, uh, a website where, let's say, somebody's interested to make a contact or to know what you're doing. Uh, what's the website? Absolutely. It's the name of the book, the short name of the book, MyMotherMyMentor.com. Okay, and so I assume you get a lot of hits. Well, we're having some conversations, which is which is great. So we'd really encourage mothers to be part of the conversation and turn to the mothers around you and start the conversations yourself. Um, any okay, well, so any other words of advice to some of these young mothers? I mean, uh, you have the experience yourself, but then you also have experience with the next generation, which I think is interesting and it's changed and it's very different. So. Um, Pamela Lenahan, My Mother, My Mentor, What Grown Children and Working Mothers Want You to Know. Go out, buy the book. Uh, Nice to have you on the show this morning. Thank you for having me, and I just would like mothers to remember that their children actually thrive by having a working mother. You're a great role model. Yeah, that's great. 
got to say that twice. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Um, we're gonna, we will say goodbye because uh, we're at the top of the hour, and I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.